into this text. We covered a little bit of this ground last week, and we're going to recover it again. It starts in verse 19. Now, that's where I want to pick up. He's been arrested. He's been drugged to Anna's house uh, for questioning, <clears throat> who last week we saw was the true high priest of Israel by blood right, by lineage. But the Romans had deposed him as high priest because he was too powerful. and so they, but, but they left it in the house of Annas. And so it went to the male members of his house on a yearly basis to keep power from getting back in that office. The Romans revered and respected this, and they, they were afraid of uh, this uh, power that was contained in the Jewish worship system. And so they were very sketchy on it. But we're going to start here with his questioning of Jesus at, at the high priest's home, Annas' home. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have, ha- have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Starting at this point, starting right here, we will see Isaiah 53 in living motion. The wrath of God is now being, beginning to be poured out onto His Son. He smacks Jesus across the face. And notice what He says. Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I say said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. I believe their houses to be connected by a courtyard. This isn't some long journey across town. It's just right across from one place to the other. Okay? And so in that courtyard is Peter. And John, and servants of the priest's home, and soldiers of that cohort probably who went out to arrest him. They're there, and they see Jesus as he's led to Caiaphas. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it again. I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. And another gospel writer records for us that at that very moment, Jesus locked eyes with Peter. Not in condemnation. Not in disappointment. Not in shock. He locked eyes with him in love. He locked eyes with him to say, Son, I'm going to die for that sin too. You're forgiven. And then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. 
Yeah, the murderers that they are, they're worried about going in a Gentile's house. If you hate a man in your heart, you've already murdered him, Jesus said. So they'd have been in violation of the law. What are they worried about? Outward conformity. Pomp and circumstance. Looking good to those around them. They're hypocrites. They're exactly who Jesus said they were. Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you because we're righteous. That's what they're saying. We're good. Surely we wouldn't come to you with a man that's not guilty. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, really? That didn't enter your mind when you were going to stone the adulterer you caught and threw at Jesus' feet. It's only convenient. It's only when convenience meets necessity that you don't want to kill a man. It's only when you want him hung up in front of his brothers so that he's accursed because you can't hang him on a tree. You can stone him, but you can't hang him on a tree. You don't want to stone him in a courtyard. You want him hung up to embarrass him, to ridicule him, to mock him, to laugh at him, to scorn him, to reject him publicly. Doers of the law usually twist the law to their benefit, don't they? It's where we find ourselves, isn't it? Often being self-righteous. Remembering what we want to remember, forgetting what we want to forget. <clears throat> this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. To show by what kind of death he was going to die. He spoke it in John 3, verse 15. He spoke it again later in John 12. Son of man must be lifted up that all men might be drawn to him. He said this speaking of the crucifixion. This isn't whim and circumstance. This is sovereign. This is planned. This is premeditated. On both the Jews' part and on Jesus' part, God's part. So Pilate entered his headquarters. Now, it might do us good to know who Pilate is. Pilate is a spineless, deviant, pitiful excuse for a governor. The governors who came before him in Judea were kind to the Jews and tried to placate them, tried to get along with them. The biggest desire of Caesar was always that his frontier counties or regions would be at peace. They understood this and they tried to follow it. But Pilate, who had come to his position because his wife was the daughter of the daughter of Augustus, that immoral daughter which Augustus kicked out of Rome, for her immorality because it embarrassed him. Yeah, that one. He married into that adulterous and sinful family. Pilate did because it was expedient after going off and fighting a war to come home to find a place to get into the royal benevolence and get an easy, relaxing post. And so he married this immoral woman in hopes of getting some high 
probably close to Rome position, and his father-in-law or grandfather-in-law sends him to the worst of places, that Judean outpost that they all hated. Pilate hated Judea. He hated the Jews. And from the very beginning, he mocked them. I mean, all other governors up until him had not dared to fly the Roman flag, which carried on it the insignia of Caesar. But not Pontius Pilate. When he arrived in town, he had it raised up over Jerusalem. The Jews came protesting. Take this down. It's blasphemous. And hearing their taunts, he puts them in the center of a coliseum and surrounds them with a death squad and says, if you don't go home, I'll kill you. And the Jews ripped their clothes and laid down on the ground and said, let it be done. Seeing their zealousness, he backed away and let them go home. And he placated them for a moment. But he wouldn't stop there. Oh, he, we know from the histories of Josephus that he put the armor of the emperor Behind Herod's throne. Again, mocking the Jewish system. Mocking their king. And when they raised their voices in objection, he just ignored it. Until finally Caesar was appealed to. And Caesar sent back saying, take it down. Now. Stop fomenting trouble. If you continue to foment trouble, you'll pay a price. And it was that warning which is going to come in. Very helpful in the trial of Jesus. You'll see that in just a moment. So Pilate's no friend of the Jews. Pilate hates and despises them. And he hates being bothered early in the morning with some, to in his mind, scattered Jewish teacher. Why should I be bothered with this man? But Pilate is going to be a character in the Gospels that seem to have a spine all of a sudden. And you might wonder, where does that come from? Because it wasn't his nature, right? Where does it come from? It comes from his wife's dream. Remember, his wife being there with him for the Passover had a dream about this Jesus. And she warned Pilate, leave him alone. Do not be caught up in this. And it's... His fear of being caught up in, it's his superstition of the gods that drives him then to look like this noble man seeking a noble end for this great, pious teacher. Pilate, self-consumed, like the rest of mankind, he could care less about who Jesus is. He's no friend of Jesus or the Jews. He's a friend of Pilate. But aren't we a lot like him? Do you ever see yourself there in the moment of trial, in the moment of opportunity to stand? You find yourself spineless, weak, falling. Let's not lash out at Pilate too quickly. So Pilate then enters into his headquarters at the Praetorium and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, he had agreed to this plot prior to them bringing him there. So the Jews expect it's going to be quick. It'll be over. It'll be done. He's going to sentence him to death, and we're going to go home by lunchtime. 
But Pilate, at this newfound strength, now asks a question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered the first question. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have taken, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Implicit that it's from heaven. It's spiritual. It's not physical. Then Pilate said to Jesus, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Pilate's a good postmodern. Relativist. What is truth? Nothing's new under the sun, students. These people run around, got a new holy grail called postmodernism and emergent. It's the same old lie from the beginning. They don't want you to believe there's truth. Because if there's no truth, this word means nothing. If this word means nothing, then God is not God. You are your God. Do as you please. Live and let live. Be careful what well you drink from. There could be poison in it. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, they've got to be shocked at this point. You've got to be kidding me. This was supposed to be done, sealed, and delivered. We bring him, you ask him a couple questions, you convict him of treason, and hang him on a cross. Play your part, Pilate. Their frustration's building. He brings up their custom. But you have a custom. It's not a biblical custom. It's one they developed based off the Passover. That I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you, first of all to these leaders, the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber and probably a murderer also. We find that in other texts. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. I mean, there's no description. Do you see that? There's no description. We're left with just this brute fact. They flogged him. Why? Because everybody who was reading the original account would have known what a flogging was. At the hands of a Hebrew, a flogging happened with you laying on the ground, being beaten with a usually a whip, a Roman flogging was much more technical and surgical, designed to inflict the greatest amount of pain possible. You stripped a man bare so that he was stripped of his dignity. You tied his hands over his head, making it impossible to stand upright, but being hunched over to draw the skin tight. They didn't hit you with leather thongs only. 
They hit you with leather thongs filled with bone and sharp pieces of metal. And when they hit you, it was not a spanking. No, on the first lash, generally, skin and flesh were ripped from the bone and even dislodged from the body. Blood would have splattered everywhere. And then they continued. We don't know, but probably the traditional 39 lashes. Because around 40, a man dies. They weren't trying to kill him. They were trying to punish him. When this beating is finished, our Lord lays probably between consciousness, bleeding profusely and looking like a skeleton. Bones exposed to the open air. Pilate did this in the hopes that the horror of that punishment would suffice. They've had enough. But God did this. That by his stripes, you and I might be healed. This is what they call child abuse. This is what I call glorious gospel. And so, having beaten, flogged him, and made him a crown of thorns, which I believe points back to the original curse of sin, which God told Adam, the ground will put forth now thorns, the curse of sin being represented now by this crown of thorns that is crushed into his skull. Because he would bear our iniquity. He would be the transgressor on our behalf. He would suffer the curse of sin for the sinner. And they put a purple robe across his tattered and torn flesh. Mocking his royalty. And then they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him. Open fist, closed fist, clubs. They beat him. Again, trying to suffice the Jews' hunger for his blood. They struck him. But Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Because it's not in him. He's innocent. But we are not. And if he did not receive our sin, we cannot go free. I find no guilt in this man. I'm bringing him back to you. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. John the Baptist opened up John's gospel by saying, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And now Pilate says, Behold the man. Behold your king. John's intentionally driving us to remember he is your lamb, he is your king, he is your man. You can't make it without this man. He's trying his best, pleading with his audience to believe in Jesus when he writes. And the Jews wouldn't be satisfied. The chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him, 
crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Blasphemy. That's the charge. Blasphemy. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Pleading, I think, with Jesus to give him something to turn him loose for. But Jesus gave no answer, for he was like a lamb led before the shearers. He was silent. Isaiah 53. You're silent. And so Pilate asked him, You will not speak to me? Now Pilate, the old Pilate's coming back. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would not have authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, not just the leaders, but now the people, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. And there's the fear. Caesar has warned him, do not have any more riots in Judea or I will depose you. You will lose your wealth. You will lose your position. You will lose your status. And for that, the Son of Man is sold out. The Son of God is crucified because this spineless Leader wouldn't lead because he's like you and he's like me. He's about himself. He's not about truth. He's not about God. He's about himself. And so Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar, dripping with sarcasm and a lie from the pit of hell. These people never recognize Caesar as anything but an invader, an intruder, a possessor, a terrorist. They were no friends of Caesar, except that Caesar could do what they couldn't do. And that's embarrass and hang the man on a tree. Pilate said to them, have your way. He delivered him over. Simultaneously, not in our account, but in other gospel accounts, washing his hands. In hopes that the God who gave his wife a dream would overlook his sin. He knew he was wrong. He did it anyway. That's the text. Now, how do you preach the text? That's just commenting on the text. It's a massive job, isn't it? Unless you find a theme, and these are the themes, this is what I want you to take on. This is it, in a nutshell. We see, first of all, that John shows Jesus to be our, excuse me, John shows us that he was rejected by the world. 
He was rejected by the world in every way. He came unto his own, but his own would not receive him. It's being fulfilled right here. How did they reject him? Look back at 18, 19 through 24. They rejected him as high priest. Jesus is high priest. Hebrews says, we have a high priest who is not unfamiliar, but familiar with all of our trials and temptations, having suffered on our behalf and now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the high priest. He's standing in front of the Jewish high priest, Annas. And look at how John brings it out. It's so good. Jesus doesn't tell them, I'm a priest. But look what the guard, when he strikes him, he says, Is that how you talk to a high priest? Jesus' answer is key to us seeing John saying he's the priest. Look what he says. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I say is right, why do you strike me? I taught in your temples, your temple. I taught in your synagogues because I'm the high priest. The guard rejects that because the Jews rejected it. And in our day, many are rejecting it still. He's our priest. The the world rejected him completely, first of all, as a priest, second of all, as the prophet. As the prophet. He had told Peter, you will deny me three times. Peter rejected that. But then he does it. Why? Because Jesus... He is the prophet, and even clearer is the exchange between Jesus and Pilate in John 18, 33 through 38. So you are king. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For what purpose? Jesus, to be the prophet, to bear witness of the truth. But Pilate rejects him, and the world rejects him, and the Jews reject him as a prophet. What is truth? It's standing in front of you, Pilate. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. Believe in him, and you will be saved. I don't even know what the truth is. What's the truth? Why did he answer that way? Because so many of you have answered that way. I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what the Bible says, but I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know who Jesus is. He's the priest, the great high priest. He is the great prophet, greater than Moses, foretold by Moses in the law. One will come after me who is greater than me. He's our prophet. He's the priest, he's the prophet, and he's rejected also as the king. He says he's a king. Look what he says. My kingdom is not of this world. He didn't say I'm not a king. He said I'm a king. My kingdom's not like your kingdom. It's not about territory. It's not about land. It's not about ethnic people. It's about spiritual belief. It's about worshiping God in spirit and truth. It's about being gathered into one people, one flock, with one great shepherd. I'm the king of that flock. I'm the shepherd, king. That's who I am. Pilate rejects it, seeing no king but Caesar. And so do the Jews. In the end, what did they say? 
Behold the king, verse 15 of 19. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar. The world rejected Jesus completely. The Jews rejected him completely as prophet, priest, and king. In every way he came to save them, they rejected that way. And if you're here without him today, what I'm trying to say to you is don't mock Pilate. Don't laugh at the stupidity of the Jews. You're in the same boat. And you've rejected him. But the second theme that John is weaving through the narrative is that Jesus is perfect. John says he's our prophet, priest, and king. You rejected him on all accounts. Okay, he's perfect. Second thing. He's perfect. He's sinless. Annas couldn't find fault with him. He sent him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was a joke. He couldn't find a problem with him. He sends him to Pilate. Pilate couldn't find a problem with him. He sent him to Herod. Herod. Herod was Herod. I'm on my throne because Caesar put me here. I'm a puppet. I'm not going to try this, man. Go see Pilate. I don't have any authority. All these kings dressed up in kingly garb in front of the king of kings. They rejected him, and he was innocent. He was perfect. And from, look at the way he stressed it. Luke says it five times. Luke has Pilate saying it five times. And John just emphasizes three times. He says he's perfect. Look at 19, verse, uh, excuse me, 18, verse 38 through 40. In the conclusion of the exchange about the kingdom, Pilate finds him innocent. Excuse, go back further. I'm sorry. The first account is in 18. Um, yeah, I wrote down the wrong reference. It's in um, right here in the story. Then Pilate said, what is truth? And in verse 38, he says, I find no guilt in him. And then it continues. And he flogs him. He beats him. And then in verse 6, he says, in verse 4, he says, I, I don't see anything wrong with this man. I'm bringing you out to show you he's not guilty. And then in verse 6, he says, He's not guilty. He is not guilty. John is straining to show us Jesus' perfection. Straining to show us that Jesus was sinless. I find no guilt in him. I find no sin in him. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. It screams from the page, doesn't it? And brings us to the final thing. The final thread. It ties the introduction to the end and leads us to the Lord's Supper. John wants us to see that he suffered and died in our place. He didn't die because of who he was. He didn't die because of his sin. 
He died because of your sin and because of my sin. This is the gospel in the purest sense. As we look at 18, where it begins in 38 and goes to the end of that paragraph I read in verse 16, and you have the flogging, you have the mocking, you have the beating, you have the preparation for crucifixion. It's all in our place. It's all in our stead. It's all because of our sin. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ that they call cosmic child abuse is the glorious, the magnificent gospel. We take it for granted. We treat it as if it's an entry point that then once we're in, we forget about. The truth is, listen, we, we deserved the cat of nine tails. The point is, we deserved the crown of thorns. The point is, We deserve the mocking and the abuse and the beating. We deserved it. It was ours to drink from the cup of the wrath of a holy God. The cross is our cross. It's not His cross. And much worse, if we suffered that way and died, It wouldn't be sufficient. It would then open us into an eternal suffering. Because our sin, though it may be counted, I don't know how many sins you've committed. You don't know how many sins I've committed. But trust me, they can be counted and numbered. They're finite. But they are sins against an infinite God. How does a finite person with finite sin pay an infinite God who is infinitely holy and infinitely just? How do we pay for sin? Give some money to the church. No, I'm not talking about a little bit. I'm talking about when you die, you're going to deed everything over to the church. Is that sufficient? Is that enough? Would it cover your sin? We wouldn't be that crass, would we? We wouldn't. We would not say it that way. We would say, no. What it what it takes to pay for sin is, I got to walk an aisle. I got to say a prayer. I got to join the church. I got to live a good life. And by doing that, I appease God. I'm on his side. You really think that's sufficient? That if you walk this aisle, pray to prayer, join this church or some other church of your liking, that would be sufficient for a finite to pay off an infinite. You think that's enough? What would be enough? What would be enough? 
We can use any analogy you want to use. There's nothing that is enough if it comes from within me or if it comes from within you. But what John is showing us is that God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived sinless. He was not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. The quarter man said, not guilty. And simultaneously, the father in his courtroom said, guilty. Guilty. Not because he has failed, but because he has succeeded. Because he has kept the law when we could not. Because he has lived in the covenant of life. And fulfilled it because he is the perfect Adam, because he is the priest, because he is the king, because he is the prophet. He stands before the judge, God, and God says, my wrath, my hatred of sin, their just punishment shall be poured out on you. And so when he suffered and died... The infinite God paid for the finite sin against the infinite God. And because he's infinite, it canceled out the debt. God did not turn his eyes from the debt book and say, we'll just let all these people in because they're pretty good. God turned to his son and saw in him me. And he poured his hatred, his wrath out on me in Christ and Christ absorbed it and on the third day was resurrected to life being vindicated being made just and the justifier of all who believe it's deep water I know we've treaded out into a very deep spot in the river of life it's hard to wrap minds and we get tired thinking Let me give you a real-life example. A family member, a distant family member of mine, murdered his wife this past year. They're out of us marriage. Things weren't going good. He came home. Nobody knows the details, really, because nobody was there but him and her and some kids. But in a struggle, presumably, he shot her with a shotgun. He called his mom and dad. They're good people. Not because they're my family, but they're they're good people. Salt of the earth, farmers. And in panic, his parents said, cover it up. Because that's their son. They don't want him to be punished. They want him forgiven. They want it wiped away. So, lie. Do anything. Don't go, don't, don't go down the road of, of confession. He called 911. He played his case over a 911 call. Police showed up. Three days passed. They came and picked Brian up. And he asked you some questions. He describes in great detail what he had done, what had happened, what he supposed had happened. They let him go home. He thought, I'm free. Breath of relief. It's over. I I beat it. I'm out of my marriage. My wife's dead. And I'm going to skate free. Several days later, 
The sheriff had received the forensics, which showed in full conclusion he had killed his wife. He had gunpowder on his hands. She had thrown her hand up in defense and in the process had lost fingers. Everything pointed to he shot her in cold blood, in anger, in passion. Nobody knows. It just, it was there. It happened. Evidence, he was guilty. But you still got to take it to court. And my dad went to that court to support the family. Went to that courtroom. He sat in the galley. He watched the proceedings. And we talked about it this past week. His poor mother and father weren't allowed in the courtroom. Brian sat along with his lawyer in front of a judge and a jury of his peers while they played the 911 tape. My dad described it to me. He said, you know, son, have you ever told a lie and got caught? You ever felt what that feels like? When he knew I have told lies and he knew I've been caught. It's kind of a stupid question, but you know how your ears turn red and your face starts flushing. That's what happened to Brian. They hadn't even questioned him yet. He hadn't even took the stand yet. The tape convicted him. The evidence on that tape was obvious that he was making a story up to try to cover his tracks. It was on his face. It was in his eyes. And my dad said this. He said, you know, I sat there in horror that one day I might stand before God. And like that tape was played, my life might be played for everyone to see. He said, it's scary. This is why I'm telling you this. Because I love you. You may think you're skating right now. You've covered your tracks. You were a bad person, but you're trying to do better. Do not be the one in the courtroom before God while the tape plays. And you flush because you're guilty. The response in that day of those will be weeping and gnashing and wailing. Not because they're innocent, but because their guilt is solidified. And the response will be they will fall on their faces and cry out, Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, to which God will say, depart. I don't know who you are. The sentence of guilt will be passed. My dad's got it right. It's scary. But let me say it this way. What I told my dad was, Dad, it is scary. But Romans 8, 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Dad, when we come into that room on that judgment day and he seated behind on the throne plays the tape, it won't be my tape. There will be no 8 millimeter film of my life being depicted for everyone. Don't believe the scare tactics. If you're in Christ, it won't happen because when you come head bowed,
in the presence of your king and you fall at his feet, he will say, Christ will say, I paid it all. I absorbed his guilt. He's my brother. Let him go free. You can't skate through good works. You can't make it on your own. But praise be to God, He has sent His own Son to bear our punishment and wrath. Absorb our sin and God, His Father's wrath, and pour out on us righteousness and freedom. Now, if you can't take the supper, as a believer, rejoicing this morning. It's it's an altar call. I I make no bones about it. We don't do altar calls at this church. I don't don't beg and plead. I'm not today. We're going to do a very different altar call from what you've been traditioned to. But I'm going to call you to respond to the gospel. What you have heard is the gospel. It's it's, it's the truth that, that saves you from this horrible fate of death and hell. And now he is provided in living symbol, bread and fruit of the vine, that we might taste what we have heard. See, when we take the bread of life and eat his flesh, and we have that blood poured over us, it's from the table of the cross that it comes. When I reach up to take that life, that bread of life, It comes from through that cross. And the blood that comes down comes from that cross. It's all wrapped up in the cross. And now it's a banquet table laid out for you and I to eat, to fellowship with Him. Okay? For all believers, not simply members of this church, if you are a believer knowing yourself to be in union with Christ through the gospel, he says, come, take, eat, rejoice, fellowship with me. And if you're lost...